last night I was discussing the Four Noble Truths as a teaching, a reference for contemplation. And so, I mean, these are, this is, this is one of, I mean, this can be very interesting for you because it, it's uh, something that uh, as you keep reflecting on those truths, I mean, they, and seeing them in, in your actual experience, and you actually clarify your thinking. You begin to think in a, in a way that isn't just caught up in, in assumptions and ideas, but actually based on, on experience, on your own insight. So that it's a, you know, it's a, uh, this is an opportunity for, for you to, to really know the truth in a direct way, rather than just believe in, in, in some abstract idea of truth. But this, this direct knowing is, uh, it's not what you think it is. So talking to some people today, just recognizing how, you know, what what's going on in your mind during this retreat? Uh, what, what kind of emotions or memories arise? Uh, it's, uh, then in putting it in terms of, uh, I mean, sometimes we, we think of meditation as, a, as, a, as the samatha practice where you, you just get very tranquil and um, you're going, you, you get very refined, which is something we all like very much. And I love those blissful moments where you just, the mind, the consciousness is just so, kind of just this lovely feeling of, of uh, bliss. And then, uh, and so that, that, when you remember that, then you want it again. You know, so I say, pleasure is addictive. What is pleasurable, you want again. You want to, when you remember it, you have. So, like the first year that I was uh, meditating, I was a samanera, and uh, and I had a lot of blissful experiences. And that first year. I did a very intensive meditation in, for about 11 months alone in this little place in the northeast of Thailand. This is before I met Ajahn Chah. So I, I went through some pretty hellish patches of just, you know, the obsessions of mine. Then finally it all kind of settled down and cleared away and I was in this state of bliss. And one period lasted for, I think, about a week. I was just uh, the mind just was in this state of bliss for about a week. And, and uh, of course, I thought, you know, I'm enlightened. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, you know, I really grabbed it. I thought, I'm, I'm really enlightened now. And, uh, and, and uh, I'll never have to go through those miserable states ever again. Uh, be careful when you start thinking like that. <laughs> I just want to warn you that... that it's not the way, that's not what happens. Something comes and, and, and you, you know, and, and, and you uh, get a, a good whack, a good, and come crashing out of it, feeling incredible despair. And then you, but you still remember these. And so sometimes meditation retreats, like you, you think, I want to have maybe a previous meditation retreat, you had some very blissful moments, and then you're thinking, no. Now, the last meditation retreat, I sat there and I did the breathing. So you sit there and you do exactly like that. And nothing happens. You just get more tense and miserable and, and fed up and want to leave and all the rest because it's, uh, it's not working. So that's why I decided years ago not to seek, seek uh, tranquility uh, as a, because I wanted it so much and I loved loved uh, that kind of mental state uh, that I, I determined that I wasn't going to particularly 
seek it out because uh, I, I mean, I, I could easily, uh, because I wanted it. And, and then Ajahn Chah very much insisted when I went there that, that you more or less fit into a daily routine of monastic life and, make, and mindfulness of just the daily life routine. Uh, and, and every time I'd kind of go off and kind of try to get tranquil, he'd, he wouldn't let me do that for very long and he'd make me do some, some like heavy work or whatever. So, <clears throat> and I used to think, Why, what's he got against tranquility? He's, he's trying to, you know, he doesn't want me to get enlightened or something. Just to get quite angry with, the, with him and feel he was, he was, uh, had it in for me or was trying to do something against me. But I did ultimately, intuitively, I knew that he was right. He was a, I trusted him, basically trusted him, though emotionally sometimes I, I hated him. Uh, <laughs> intuitively, I, I did, I respected him. And because of that, then I would I'd think, what's, what's he saying? Why is he doing this? And I remember one when we were up at this beautiful place, Tamsangpa, it's my favorite monastery, and I and I, I really loved this place, and uh, and it was very tranquil place, and not many people came to it, and had beautiful places to live, and caves, and and all that, and and I really, uh, you know, I thought I just want to spend the rest of my life in this beautiful place, and uh, then one one day Ajahn Chah came, and and. Uh, he says, I want you to come with me. We're going into one of the villages for some, some function. And I felt like saying, well, I don't really want to go, but I didn't dare refuse an invitation from somebody like Ajahn Chah. So <coughs> I went kind of reluctantly. And we went into this village and they're having a, a big fair. And, and they had all these blaring loudspeakers going. You know, you're just, you know, really raucous sound and, and there's blaring sound and they, people in the, nor- in the rural parts of time, they love noise. So that they just love blaring out these uh, loudspeakers. Uh, somebody would be screaming into the microphone or something <laughs> like that. And, and so they, we, were, we were put on this kind of platform uh, right in front of everybody. And, uh, and I just found it the most aggravating, irritating, most horrible uh, sensual experience. You know, just this, this, this sound, this electronic sound and noise coming at you. And they didn't seem to be doing anything worthy of, you know, of noticing. I wondered, why did Ajahn Chah bring me to this place? Because I was quiet, I was getting very tranquil up at Tamsang Pat and and uh, that was real, my, real, my practice was really getting somewhere. And I was really making uh, uh, advancements and, and achievements. And then he brings me to this place. And so I sat there and I just kind of fumed about it. And just, this is a waste of my time. This is a waste of time. I don't know why he, he's doing this to me. Why does he come to these things? This is, he shouldn't be. These, are, these, are, these aren't worth coming to. And it's very kind of self-righteous, conceited way that I can be. I was just, uh, um, you know, really sitting there and just, you know, feeling that angry and annoyed and, and critical. But then I did come to, why did he, why is he doing this to me? And then, then I began to observe how, you know, the state of my mind was, was more miserable than the sound on the loudspeaker. The stuff I was spewing up inside me was worse by far than the, than the noise at this festival. And I thought, actually, you know, that, that's that what I was creating out of it, my aversion, my anger, resentment, criticism, that was really miserable. When I, when I became aware of that, and I could see that's what he was, he was trying to get me to look at, was, was, was not to, to uh, attach to, to tranquility or to refine things or to ideals, because uh, then you bring me into a place, you know, obviously, you know, for me to see what the real misery was. 
that it wasn't the the loud uh, deafening sounds on the loudspeaker, but it was my me creating this ugly, these ugly thoughts and things in my mind. So I mean, it's these are you know this ways of of pointing to what where you know what. That we that the suffering the Buddha is pointing to in the first noble truth isn't the suffering from listening to you know having been in some place where there's loud noises that are unpleasant, but it's the how you your your emotional reaction to them that is the misery. I mean we can we can bear with a lot of, with those kind of things uh, if we have to. We can endure all kinds of misery uh, and and misfortunes, but the the aversion, the anger, the resentment, that is the real misery of our lives. And you can see it in the, you know, how well uh, it's, you can see it in a country like this where we're actually, you know, it's a very nice country to live in. So you've got, you've got, uh, you know, a a good, you know, whether you think the government's good or not, it's it's good enough. It's a a democratic system. (laughs) And it's, and and it's, uh, you know, uh, a tolerant and good society. Basically, it's a it's a, a standard of living that's quite pleasant. And but yet, you know, even with all the best that one has here, people create endless misery in their mind because they don't like this, they don't like that, and they, and the, the, and there's so many things one can can uh, get angry or indignant or resent in any place you're living in. But it seems so obvious in a, in a play, in a, especially in, the, in an affluent country. If you've lived in third world places, you you can see there's you know there's a lot of uh, you know things like malnutrition, things that are really quite you know real problems for people. But but uh, in affluent countries, you find just as much misery. But it's the misery of other people creating their minds. In uh, and that's that is the the dukkha of the of the first noble truth to understand that. So the the misery we create in our minds, the worry, the tendencies to worry. To be critical, self-critical, self-disparaging, uh, all kinds of fears, anxieties, worries that we create around uh, anything, you know, about you know whether the 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 newspaper comes on time or whatever, uh, or just the selection who's 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 going who's going to select the television program we're going to watch this evening. Mm-hmm. These are the these are the I mean, people get quite miserable over things like this, and and so in say in, in our in reflecting on it, we begin to see how how uh, wanting something to be what it's not, not wanting you know, like like if if we have like the sound from the the, the loudspeaker system, hating not, hating that sound was. Not wanting that sound to be there, that was the suffering. That was the real suffering. The other was was just strong sense impingement, unpleasant sense impingement. But it didn't become suffering till I said, "I don't want this sound here. I don't like it. I don't want to be here." So having to be with what you don't like is suffering. What you don't want, uh, having or. Having to be separated from what you like is suffering. I mean, we create suffering about being separated from what we like, what we love, what we want. Uh, and, and these are, so the, the, the Buddha, when we say, uh, when we chant, we chant to be separated from the love, to have to be with what we don't like, to want something we don't have, and then these are so ordinary, kind of common human experiences that we contemplate this, and when we and apply that to to your to what you're feeling, like like if your mind is in a isn't 
peaceful. If you're if you're experiencing all kinds of of negative states or pain in the body or 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 negative feelings, and then contemplate it in terms of of the noble truth, like the, this suffering is, this, is it, say there is this suffering. Let's say if you if you want to have a tranquil nice tranquil retreat, instead you're getting all kinds of negative emotions coming up, and then you're, and then you're, you're feeling uh, frustrated or annoyed or threatened or fed up with it, you're creating that, you know, the, the negative emotions are what they are, I mean, this is what you're experiencing now, but not wanting them, resisting them, hating them, that is the suffering. So then the, then when you, Contemplate that when you really see that, then you you accept you you can bear with the negative emotions. They're impermanent, and they, they and if you and if you actually uh, accept them for what they are, then you're not creating suffering, even though you're you're still experiencing unpleasantness or uh, that as as a mental experience, but you're not creating misery compounding it with aversion, hatred, resentment. So it's quite, quite a, re- a realization that, that, and then the thing is when you begin to, and like uh, surrendering into the pain, into the misery, it's like learning to relax into pain means that you, you don't suffer from it, or relax into the 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 dukkha you're experiencing is to is to accept it and just not not resist it but to just be let it be to be aware of it and and accept it. then then you do do not create suffering from it anymore and then it cease it'll it'll cease it'll vanish but you've got to allow it to vanish not on your command but when it's time. That's why it's it's a different, you know, in in the world where you're you're fighting and trying to organize things so that you get rid of what you don't like. Then there's no end to that. There's always what you know. Even when you get everything all nicely arranged and neatly, you know, cleaned and ordered, and there's always something comes along that that upsets you. So this is like changing your attitude towards it. Like in, a, in a retreat like this, if if uh, if if you're having a lot of of misery and uh, uh, say thank you, you know, thank thank the Dhamma for being having a having a mis- misery to look at, something to do, you know, rather than think. This is a terrible retreat because I'm miserable. I mean, just by 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 changing your attitude of 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 gra- to, towards gratitude and acceptance, and then it's it's quite interesting how things drop away. Now the mind that you're 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 beginning to to realize is universal. It's it's like it's it's not. If there's room for everything in in your mind, whatever thought, no matter how good or bad it is, a permutation, a variation on emotions and ideas and feelings and thoughts and all the rest, no matter how big or small, good or bad, clean or dirty or whatever, there's room for them in the mind. It's not like you've got to get rid of this in order to get all of that. So, so this is a reflection where there's there's room for it all because it arises, ceases, and so you're not, you're not, you don't feel you're always having to kind of control and manipulate everything to, to get your mind pure and make it bright and shiny and, and uh, and then try to hold it into that state of shininess, because I mean you can you can get these tranquil moments where, through suppression of 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 impingement, but. 
you can't sustain those for very long. I mean, they drop away and anything harsh or coarse or, or especially when, when emotional, when it's time for emotional things to arise up in consciousness, then of course they, they, uh, they, you can't get much tranquility from that. You don't expect tranquility from that. But there's, there is a peaceful way, peace in a sense of a peaceful, non-violent, even a grateful attitude towards it all. Because in the long run, one is grateful for, for those challenges. When I look back over the years of meditation, I think some, some, of, the, some of the most uh, kind of painful and, and difficult experiences, uh, now I feel only gratitude. I, when I look back, I, quite, I don't have resentment. I'm quite grateful for that, that because they've always somehow forced me to confront or rise up to a situation that maybe I didn't want to or feel or maybe I felt I couldn't do it. But you can do it. You know, this is the thing. is that you, Your mind may say you can't do it, but don't believe it. Your emotions are, you, you know, often are conditioned, they're habits, so they, they tell you lies all the time. You can't believe emotions. So the emotion can say, I can't take any more of this. I've had enough. I'm fed up. Emotions can say, but, but you can take more of it. <laughs> the, with the sound of silence, that, 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 that's very helpful with, with, uh, with thought. And also to be able to... Uh, to let emotions into, you know, to be able to, as you as you use the sound of silence as a background, rather than it's not something to hold to and just uh, attach to, but it's a reference point that 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 will will empty the mind. Your mind will go quite empty if you stay with that sound of silence for a few counts, and then then then. Then you can uh, say emotional things can, if you can even deliberately bring them up into consciousness, and get some perspective on them, just and and, and see them in, with the, with the because the, the the sound of silence doesn't blot out emotion. You, it kind of uh, is a background, and emotional upheavals are are kind of operating, and uh, you know are. Are there, but they're but they're in a perspective that that isn't that that you can see them for what they are in terms of dhamma, rather than analyze them endlessly as kind of on a personal level or analytic or or uh, through trying to uh, figure out why do I feel this way. Because sometimes we, we, we want we want to figure out why do I have these these particular tendencies? If I've got some some uh, ha- bad habits or fears or desires that are strange or weird or unnatural or aberrant or whatever, then you think why why do I have these things? And then you can you you know and you can try to trace them maybe to to uh, childhood experiences, abused child, or this or that, or and that you know that that gives you maybe some willingness to to see that there's a cause and and that uh, and see, understand how karma affects life. But it, there's still a strong sense of it being a a personal thing, and and that that's where where it's very. That that sense of it really being my problem can 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 linger in the mind and influence how you you live your life. But when you're just recognizing the moment, the this this particular feeling or emotion or whatever is just like this. You're, there's a it's not analytical. It's it's a 
it's it's mindful acceptance of what is present in the now and then and then the willingness to bear it to to accept it for what it is and then it ceases so then you're realizing the cessation of it its presence and its absence and that's liberating that and that will not and that will will not create a sense of yourself as being a person that is this way or that way or, or an identity with with any kind of uh, emotional habits or or characteristics that you might have that you might you might uh, identify strongly with grief is uh, resentment uh, guilt People get like some women have tremendous guilt over having had an abortion, and so that they'll, well, they'll, you know, maybe on a meditation retreat, this this memory of having had an abortion will come up, and then they'll they'll hear somebody say, you know, that that's murder. You've killed a, a child, and, and you could put it in the most kind of uh, horrendous. Uh, you know, terms of, of uh, you know, callous, brutal, murderous, <laughs> and and uh, and then feel incredibly, you know, just that your life has been ruined and that you're uh, that you're some horrible person that that's going to have to pay some terrible karmic debt off. Because oftentimes when we speak about these things, then we th- th- people have various opinions and and say things that. Uh, that can really make us very anxious and worried, and and that's and then on a meditation retreat where you're sitting alone or sitting quietly, where where maybe these kind of fears or that will start coming into consciousness. You can get in a real state of of um, a suicidal uh, feeling of suicide is the only way out <laughs> because of. Of something that happened in the past, but in terms of dhamma, what what we're doing is is we're admitting this. This is what if this if these kind of if this is what's happening, then you there's an awareness of that this memory, this 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 fear, this perception is present in the mind. Then, if you make it into into yours, then you think I'm I've done something terrible. I'm I maybe I have to suffer, or or and then you become obsessed with it. You become it becomes an obsession in the mind. But if you're putting in a context of dharma, you have trust in that. That that is your refuge now is in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, so that that you can you know you're not trying to dismiss it or get out of anything or or, or lie to yourself in any way, but you're you're actually looking at it for exactly what it is. It's a memory in the present. You say you had an abortion ten years ago, and you remember it now. What is it right now? In a, in, a, in, a, in as at this moment, is it's a memory, isn't it, from the past? You remember, and that memory will then maybe. Uh, send you into some state of anxiety or guilt or remorse or whatever, and and that that uh, that emotional reaction to that memory. It is also you can observe that the emo- you could, the, the memory is a memory. It is what it is. The emotional reactions like this, and so you're you're actually observing the way things are, and and uh, and if you trust in that really and, and bear with it, then it'll cease. And then you, you can notice or make a, a, a recognize the absence of of that. The mind where something has ceased, where something that was be, that existed a moment before is now not there. It's like this. It's em- it's not there now. Now that sounds easy, I know, in terms of description. But when it's actually happening to you, then you you need you know this is where the the refuge is most useful because you need that 
that kind of confirmation and 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 uh, encouragement to bear it and the pain of it and the feeling of it. So you're not you're not just saying, well, it's just impermanent and not self, because that that's a dismissal. You know, if you're just saying that memory is just you know it's impermanent. What are you doing? You're dismissing the memory. You you say, well, it, you know, it's nothing. Ajahn Sumedho said it's just impermanent. What are you really doing is you're dismissing it. So we're not dismissing the Amnicha contemplation of impermanence isn't isn't just projecting the idea of Anicca onto things as a dismissal. But it is, it is a reflective embracing of that memory of that mood, really feeling it and being with it, but trusting in in in, in the in your ability to to objectify, to see it for what it, exactly what it is, and, it, and how, and to really feel it, feel the pain or the misery of it. But you're not suffering from it because when you're willing to feel life and feel the pain and the and and all this, you're not creating anything around it. You're merely, you know, you're with the actual experience itself. So even though it it's on. It's painful and unpleasant. You're not creating suffering, because the creating suffering over that would be, uh, uh, you know, a, a kind of uh, of going into the mode of I did this. I shouldn't have. What'll happen to me? And and uh, oh dear me, uh, blah, 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 blah. that that's the stuff we create out of the out of the illusion of that's me. It's mine. I did this and. And uh, what's going to happen to me? Then that, the, so you know, th- th- there's no end to that. If you, if you believe that, and you have no refuge outside of just your own, the sense of yourself as a, as somebody, as a personality, then these things are always going to kind of follow you around like specters and ghosts that that trail after you. But if you can see it in the right way, in terms of what it really is, then you, you're learning how to resolve these things. And you, and you, you begin to feel a sense of trust and, and an ability to resolve your own karmic uh, vipaka karma that, as it arises. So, no, you know, whatever you've done in the past, is, uh, you know, isn't I mean, if you, if you really have this sense of refuge, then uh, you know even uh, the most horrendous acts and foolish things that one could have done in the past. It doesn't mean you're you're you're, you're getting out of anything, but it means that you're using it for understanding. Bad memories, guilt, remorse, fears, anxieties—all these things are are. Something that we can, that uh, that we, you know, if that's what we're, if that's what we're experiencing, then that's what we uh, can. That's what we're using for development of this path. It also allows us to see how to, how to to do things so we don't feel guilt and remorse anymore. Because when we do wrong things, then the result is we feel guilty. I mean, Dhamma doesn't make, it doesn't make you into a kind of psychopath where you think, well, I can just do it and 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 then uh, whatever I want and then uh, just let go of the memory. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> I mean, you know, as a monk, you get you you have uh, you have this discipline. And it's very uh, kind of uh, detailed, <coughs> so that uh, you know, all kind of affecting all forms of bodily action and speech. So, you know, you're you're what what isn't wrong or or an offense for you, it can very much be one for us. <laughs> So I mean, you do get, you know, you you can get incredibly worried about things in the monastic life because your your discipline, so uh, you know, is there, and it's uh, you know, like uh, um, 
and it can can make you terribly worried and concerned about these uh, uh, committing offenses. Well, that's one way of dealing. The self view and 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 the worry and identity with discipline and all that can can make it into an onerous burden. But that's not what it's meant to be. It's meant to to help us to towards mindfulness and towards limiting us so that we're say our margins for doing things are are much more limited. We don't have the all the options and opportunities that lay people have for doing what we want and saying saying what we want to say or feel like saying or just habitually say. So the, the discipline does help, you know, if we use it the right way, it helps us towards reflection and mindfulness. Because it's, uh, it's about action and speech. With, uh, and therefore, you know, like um, have all these rules about uh, food and not eating in the afternoon and and uh, some monks get really concerned. I've seen them, you know, like uh, you're not supposed to eat after 12 solid food or except for cheese. Somehow you can eat cheese in the afternoon. And then, uh, and then some monks say, "No, you—that's uh, a wrong interpretation. There's, there's cheese-eating monks and non-cheese-eating monks." <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> these are things we have, you know, have to come to grips with in our lives. And then, <laughs> then the, uh, uh, why did the Buddha allow cheese <laughs> and chocolate? Cheese and chocolate. The Buddha allows us to eat chocolate. Not if it has milk in it, we can't have it. In the afternoon, we can have it in the morning. We can have dark chocolate in the afternoon. And so, so this this uh, creates worry. You get if somebody gives you a chocolate bar, you immediately read the label. Is there any milk in it? <laughs> But it does. If if used wisely, it helps you to be mindful. Then, then some pe- then, like Burmese monks, they won't drink tea or coffee or eat cheese or chocolate in the afternoon. So then, when Burmese monks come here, then we all feel a bit like we're not quite as good as they are, <laughs> because we do drink coffee and tea and fruit juice and lemonade and all that and cheese and chocolate they don't and so they're one can feel intimidated by that so and I remember uh, in uh, Thailand you know there's a big cheese argument going on at the monastery (laughs) one time there were those for it and those against it And I'm always towards more kind of lenient style of life. And I remember one monk, uh, a Western monk, was very much anti-cheese. <laughs> and uh, and he was uh, he was a really uptight monk. You know, he just he had a body like a. I mean, it was full of tension, and he just seemed you know he's always in pain, and and uh, he had this kind of nervous energy, and and he is always worried and always against things, you see. They had an incredibly negative mind and, and a kind of purist tendency of wanting to take the strictest, most puritanical interpretation of, of monastic life. And, uh, I mean, so this was his character tendency. And then, then say, someone like me is more kind of, uh, t- tries to take the most lenient interpretation <laughs> <laughs> of things. And and so he just thought, you know, I was, uh, you know, he had very, you know, very critical of me because he thought I was just, you know, a kind of uh, person that that was just trying to get away with things, or he was trying to really keep to the rules and be really strict and and uh, and do it all proper. But then, if you're really looking at your mind, you're, you're noticing these things, like, like, like for him. He, he was he was so tense, you know. He didn't know how to. It would have been, I think, he would have been, you know, if he just said, "Cheese, fine, chocolate, whatever." But, 
but instead it became a, a big cause. And he went to India one year, and he decided to research this about cheese at the time of the Buddha. And he found some, something where, uh, in his travels in India and found that someplace in India they make something that might have been what they mean uh, about what they interpret as cheese now. And that this something that he discovered in India isn't cheese. And there's nowhere else you can get it but in this one little place in India. <laughs> and he came back kind of triumphant. <laughs> But the cheese-eating monks uh, just dismissed it as a <laughs> <laughs> But what are, the, are you watching what you're doing? You know, this is the whole point. Are you being mindful of all this? You know, in terms of cheese or no cheese or, or whatever. In, and one... Or, you know, are you, the, the aim is, is towards mindfulness, not towards uh, grasping these kind of things. So, um, so it's, uh, you know, the, it's not really, it doesn't really, you know, to me, the, it's not important. If, it's, uh, if, you know, I'm quite willing to not eat cheese in the afternoon, that's fine. I don't mind that, and, and uh, it's certainly not going to upset me. If I go and live in a monastery where they, they, they're totally against cheese in the afternoon, that, that's not going to stop me from living there. Because I don't care. <laughs> but, but I also, if, if they like, if there's cheese, I'm also quite willing to eat it if it's offered and things like that. So I mean, it's, it's, it's not a ma- I don't make it into a problem. Because uh, to me, in the Vinaya, there's, there's reasons to think it could or could not be. And, and it's more or less what you decide, what, you know, what the Sangha decides they're going to allow, rather than something established 2,500 years ago uh, that has to be literally taken in the present moment as, as uh, that was established then and it can only be that, because that almost makes the, it impossible to be a Buddhist monk. Because some of the rules you can't figure out anymore what they mean, because they're referring to things that just don't exist anymore in, in terms of our experience. <coughs> but you see what I'm pointing at is the, that the that the 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 aim of of the vinaya is to get us to look at what we're doing, at how things affect us, rather than 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 just hold us to a, a some kind of uh, viewpoint that makes us uh, uh, very much attached and very much frightened by the fact that if if it if somebody else does it differently then it's wrong so you get with pe- with with this kind of discipline you get monks who are very uh, kind of very rigid who who really look down and despise monks who eat cheese or or don't keep all the rules. So, like, like we're strict about not having money, the, in not having uh, touching money, not having money of your own. And 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 in in other monasteries in Thailand, monks have money. So then, uh, and then you you form this idea that you know that these monks that have money are there, that. You know, actual discipline says you're not supposed to have money, but it says gold and silver. And so, but who carries gold and silver now? They have paper money. And they say, well, we're not carrying gold and silver. We're <laughs> it's just paper. <laughs> but then you've got to recognize what, what, what is the point of this? You know, like, like if, uh, you know, if it's literally gold and silver, or is it just having wealth, that you, personal wealth? You know, how do you want? To me, the value lies in the idea of not having the privilege of personal wealth that I can just do, uh, go and buy things as I want them. That, as an alms mendicant, you don't have money because you're, you know, the idea is to is to not just be able to go and get what you want when you feel like it. That you're really dependent on 
on the generosity of others and and you and also it makes life very simple the fact that you you really can't uh, you don't have the freedom to just you know follow your desires when, when if you have your own money you can you can you know get what you want and go where you want to go but if you if you're dependent on alms then it's much more limiting and i find that helpful to me and I, and i appreciate that <coughs> But then, I remember going to a monastery years ago in Bangkok, and the monks had money, and I was staying there, and I was very critical of those monks. And kind of, I guess I was a bit, you know, kind of, uh, I wasn't very polite to them, and I was very, uh, you know, I really looked down on them, thought they were bad monks, and, and I don't think I was a very, very nice guest at their monastery because of that. And so uh, I stayed there only a few days, and I left. And, I, and then I started thinking about, you know, that while I was there, you know, these monks had really been very kind to me. But I had been so obsessed with the idea that they carried money that I didn't, couldn't even appreciate their kindness at the time. And I was quite, you know, snooty and, and, uh, and, and felt much better than they. And then I contemplated, you know, this mental state of the, that I'm a better monk than that one, or that I'm more pure than that monk, and I don't carry money and they do. Contemplating that kind of identity, I think, is that a peaceful identity? To be a, the purest monk who's much better than every other monk. Is that, that, that kind of perception, is that, is that a peaceful uh, way of thinking. And when I really looked at it, you know, this idea that I'm somehow better than, than somebody else, I could see it wasn't. It wasn't a peaceful mental state. I didn't, it was an unpleasant way to, to live your life, thinking that you're better than somebody else. Not to mention thinking you're worse than somebody else. But even thinking you're better because you're, you're more strict and you're pure and all that is isn't, isn't the point of the Vinaya, is it? It's for reflection, for to see these mental states. So it doesn't mean that I, that I can carry money or that I can just interpret Vinaya according to my own feelings of, and, and inclinations of the moment. It's one respects the discipline according to the Sangha's standard. But then also, it's an important to see how it affects your mind. How discipline, rules, precepts, interpretations, uh, renunciant rules, uh, things that prevent you from having things that you might want and all that, how they affect and, and how they, you know, what, what kind of mental states arise and the self-identities that can come from it. Because the aim is to, to liberate the mind, not to just institute or condition you into being a, a supercilious snob or, or someone who's, who's uh, you know, like, a, who's so proud that they're more pure than somebody else. Because that's what we most dread about religion, isn't it? The kind of hypocrisy of, uh, that comes from being from think, thinking that you're more, you're, you're better, you're more moral than somebody else. As we can, you know, we can see like somebody else is, is promiscuous, adulterous, uh, smokes cigarettes, drinks liquor, uh, doesn't have any morals, and uh, all that, and we can, and, and we, well, I, you know, look at me, I'm, Celibate, 30 years celibate. None of that for me. And, and uh, don't carry money, and, and I don't drink liquor, and I don't take drugs, and, and uh, I eat cheese. <laughs> oh. We all have our weak points. I'm humbling that one. But then, but then we can, we can, you know, you can see that that is a, 
But that's not the point of it, to, to, uh, to, to cling to the idea, these ideas that you are somehow pure through, through keeping rules. Because that's, that's one of the defilements that prevents stream entry, what's called silapata-baramasa, or clinging to rules, rituals, and rites as ways of purifying yourself. And that's, that's an obstruction towards uh, under or seeing the path or the way of non-suffering. But that doesn't mean you don't have rituals, rites, and rules. But it, 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 because rituals, rites, rules, traditions, can, it's how you use them, you know, how you relate to them that's important. Like bowing or chanting or traditional forms and, and uh, vinaya standards and all that. If it's taken on an egotistical level, then it's then one becomes a a, a a hypocrite or a or a snob or a very tense person that's always a, trying to you know feel threatened by the world because you might become made impure by touching the money or or you know doing something that's going to to destroy your purity. Uh, that, that, that to me is not, you know, you're not really being mindful, you're just being very conditioned to, to be uh, someone who's become some kind of strict monk, but not liberated through it. So the liberation comes through the, 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 you know, being able to use these restraints, restrictions, traditions, for observing what you're actually feeling. Like bowing to to the Buddha Rupa is a, is a good one for Westerners because some people have great resistance to that. You know, so you're brought up if you've been brought up in the Jewish or Christian traditions, you should never bow down to golden images or graven images. And it's golden and graven, <laughs> bowing down. So, so that comes up. I remember at first. When I first started bowing, I had that in my mind, you know, like is this, you know, even though I wasn't, I left Christianity years ago, and still, that that perception still came up in my consciousness. And then I contemplated, what am I? Am I bowing? You know, what am I doing to it? What what is it? What is it that I'm actually doing? And uh, then I think I can bow because because uh, everybody wants me to, and I'm just doing it because everyone else is there. That's one way of doing it. I can do it because uh, uh, I think it's uh, a beautiful gesture, or I can do it um, in just a very haphazard and kind of heedless way. I can do it in a very mindful way, or I can refuse to do it, or whatever. There's so many different ways of looking at it. But then if, if I think it's part of a tradition that I'm, that I'm, that I'm following, so, and this is, this is what they do, and how to do this then so that, that I'm developing mindfulness with it. So then looking at Buddha images, for example, I, I think, you know, do, do I think that is some kind of sacred image? Do I, if when I bow down to this Buddha image, am I looking at it? Some kind of, does it have some kind of magical quality in it, or is it uh, some kind of sacred object that that I have to bow to, or what is it? It's a, it's an icon, isn't it? It's a figure for reflection. So how how, how am I going to use this Buddha image uh, for mindfulness? One thing it. Re- because it is a Buddha image, it reminds you of Buddha, so refuge in Buddha. And that, so that means the, the mindfulness to be with what you're doing. So then, then the bowing becomes something you're doing mindfully. It's a way of uh, a gesture of the body synchronizing your body with your mind. So that it can be seen as, as something quite quite uh, useful in terms of mindfulness and in practice, rather than just, uh, you know, Theravada and ceremonial ritual that 
that we don't that we think we can dismiss because we 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 don't see its value. But what I'm saying is that these these things are, you know, how you determine them, what you want to make of it. Not like if you don't bow that that's wrong. I mean this is something you know, you you're you're you you must know what's going on in your mind and uh, and and really watch and listen. That's the point. It's a, is 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 mindfulness. So one can use you know in uh, you know whatever is around. Like like here in in England, there are a lot of churches in the villages and that. So one can you know if you if you're identified with a Buddhist, you can think um, they're Christian churches. I'm a Buddhist. So you, you, you go along with that, thinking, you know, they just they belong to Christians. So you can dismiss them as, you know, you don't have anything to do with them. Or you can, because to, to develop mindfulness when you're traveling around, going from one place to another, you, it's helpful to have sacred things around that remind you of the Dhamma or of God or the Divine or whatever term, something that the transcendent reality. So you can, I've determined all Christian churches as symbols to, that remind me of the transcendent reality of the deathless. So I just made, made that up in my mind. I don't know if Christians do that, but, but I, because I'm here, I'm in Thailand, I do it with Buddhist temples because there's Buddhist temples everywhere. But here, in England, there are not many Buddhist temples around to do that, so you use what's around, because it's up to you what, how you, how, what you want to do with it. <coughs> but if you're just going on the cultural conditioning level, then you, then you can just say, they're Christian, I'm not a Christian, and, and just dismiss it. Or you can, make, you can use it for, say, developing. Because when we integrate practice into daily life, we n- w- it's helpful to have symbols that 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 remind us of of the Dhamma or of our spiritual aspiration. It helps. It helps us to to co- compose and collect our ourselves when we're traveling or going from one place to another or in the London Underground. Of ways of of just you know using. The, uh, the like like for, for instance traveling I do a lot of traveling flying and so I I used to uh, feel that you know like um, a bit hassled by like having to stand in queues to go through customs and immigrations and filling out these forms and and I used to feel negative about it. Uh, going into airports and, and having to wait in, to, to get your seat, your assignment, and and check your baggage, and and then wait in the transit lounge, and then board the plane, and then arrive, and have to go through the immigration, and, and then get your baggage, and then go through the customs, and and uh, and all this. And I found that you know I used to see it in terms of. Uh, uh, of complaining or think, thinking of it in terms of uh, of something I didn't like. So instead, I changed my attitude towards it. I began to think, take like standing in queues as a chance to be mindful, listening to the sound of silence while I'm standing in a queue, uh, waiting to go through the immigration, or waiting to waiting for my my bag to appear on the baggage uh, line, you know. It's interesting, you're standing there waiting and, and then the suitcase pops out. And maybe the next one. You think, why can't mine be the first one sometimes? It's never the first. It always seems to, they always seem to get, get it in last or something. I always seem to have to be the one that's waiting the longest time to get my bag. Why me? <laughs> what is it that why I think the world you know got a plot to keep me waiting <laughs> to get my 
<laughs> so then, changing it, I, I just I use these, these kind of waiting opportunities as a chance for collecting myself. Of being with the moment, being with what is. So now I quite enjoy all that. I, I don't. I, I enjoy going into airports and going through, and waiting for things, and and uh, because I've changed my attitude towards it. It's still the same experience, but but I'm not creating suffering around it. Where before, say, I was I was complaining or I was kind of restless and wanting to get over, get through this in order to get out of the airport. And there's always this kind of, you know, I want to get this, this stuff over with so I can get on to the more important things. So there's this kind of restless impatience with, with anything that slowed you down. Another, another experience I had years ago was at Chithurst when there was this old lady that used to come, a uh, really lovely old woman that was nearly deaf and blind. English woman, very, very nice person, and lovable character. But she couldn't hear very well, so every time, and she wanted to be in on everything. So, so y- you know, you're in the, in the reception room, and you're talking, and she wasn't getting it. So she'd say, she'd say what, what were you saying? And, and then you'd say it again, she, she couldn't hear it. So then you'd have to raise your voice. And uh, uh, we're, we're going to have coffee this morning. <laughs> and so then I found, you know, because of this, I was this, having to raise my voice and I was getting irritated. Then it had come out quite angry sometimes. <laughs> I found myself, myself yelling at this old lady that I loved very much. And, and then she's always, you know, really wanted to to be in on everything, so she's always asking questions. Then one time, uh, she was talking to me about something very important, and and somebody came in and said, somebody wants to speak to you on the telephone, Ajahn Sumato. So, uh, so uh, the, my immediate reaction was, what, somebody wants me on the telephone. So I stood up, and 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 then Nanda was her name. She. Uh, she didn't know what was happening, you see. So she stopped me and got in my way. And I felt this incredible frustration, you know, this old woman <laughs> was stopping me. I was on this, you know, the momentum of this rush out to the office to answer the telephone. And I, and I felt really angry at her, you know, uh, because she was, she, was, she was in my way and, and slowing me down from this rush into the, into the office to answer the telephone. So contemplating that, I thought, yeah, this is important. She's, she's very important to your life. She'll slow you down. <laughs> Change my attitude towards her. Rather than saying that this deaf and nearly blind old woman is in my way and I have to, uh, you know, being irritated and, and, and confused because, you know, basically you like her, but then but then you resent having to slow down or raise your voice to talk to her. Instead, changing the attitude was you know, a sense of gratitude of realizing she was helping me, you know, that here I am, you know, one of these impulsive men that somebody says, they want you on the telephone, you whoop, get out and run out and do it, and it's like that. Rather, this was a chance to, to appreciate the fact that, that, I, that uh, she was helping me to maybe reflect this, this speedy impulsiveness of, that I had. You see what I mean? How to use uh, frustrating situations or things to reflect your own habits and, and tendencies that might, you know, really give you a lot of suffering and, and needn't if you, if you change or, and use them for mindfulness in daily life. So, uh, uh, I think this is a very interesting reflection, how to use tradition, forms, rules, precepts, situations, laws, and that, for mindfulness. Rather than just be, just going through life, 
doing all these things in in a perfunctory way or just you know being frustrated because you you know it's so easy for us in in a modern in modern world to to want instant you know to try to get things done very quickly and 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 feel very uh resentful for anything that that gets in the way or prevents us from that following that momentum and that's really very helpful to us and something to stop like a traffic jam on the M25 this thing that Bangkok I think Thais now are very fortunate because Bangkok has terrible traffic problems slowing them all down <laughs> they have time now to sit for hours in a traffic jam and meditate <laughs> So it depends on how you look at it. It's up to you how you want to live this life. So contemplate, you know, just in, in your own experience, like your, your, uh, like the things you've done in the past. How you're going to relate to that in terms of dismissal or resentment or whatever or you can you can take the the memories of the past and use them for mindfully and for development of the way of enlightenment so tonight remember the fourth posture is uh, is to uh, is a lying down posture I recommend that <laughs>